A couple weeks ago, I was at our uh, evangelical, the Evangelical Free Church, our denomination, I was at our theology conference that happens every year uh, down in the Chicago area. And like all conferences, I went to the registration table, I get my packet, and then I, there was really a ton of people around, so I kind of got out of the crowd, I went and I sat down and started going through my packet, and I pulled out um, my name tip badge that they give you to put around your neck that identifies you. And I sat there for a second, and as I looked at this badge, I saw my name, and then I saw our name, Crossview Church. And it was almost like time stood still for a brief second, and I started thinking about how that name isn't just a name on a badge, but to me, it represents a whole bunch of people I love. It represents stories of God moving in powerful ways in people's life. It represents people walking through amazing times, people walking through very difficult times, people walking through hard times and finding God in all of it. And I just was overcome with this sense of gratitude that as I see all these people walking around with their different names and then their church they're associated with, and it wasn't an identity thing. My, my identity is in Jesus Christ, I know that, but it was more of an association thing. And I just was thankful to the Lord that he's called me to Crossview Church and he's given me the experiences of walking life with all of you. And I just had a profound sense of gratitude. And I just want to tell you, maybe I don't do this enough, but I just want to tell you how much I love you. I love you, Crossview Church. And um, it was just an amazing time. And I was grateful to God for what he's given us. And that can't be said everywhere. And I really believe that this is a special thing. And if there was anywhere I could serve, this would be it. And God knew that. And, and so that time I was in that conference, I put that on. And it was almost like I had you guys with me. And I'm walking around with Crossview Church. And it just was a cool, cool thing. So when I look at that picture, it's not just a name. It's not just a few words. There's meaning behind that. There's so much behind that. There's thousands of things in my mind that go with that picture. And so I guess it's really true where they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Because there's so much about pictures that we can draw from and we can learn from. And, and this morning as we wrap up our series, True Disciple, we're going to look at prayer. And, and what I wanted to do this morning is look at three pictures of prayer that we see in the scriptures because pictures are worth a thousand words. And if there's a way to teach us about prayer and how we connect with God, I figured we could go look at these pictures, and these pictures would help us to do that. And so uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33 as we look at these pictures. That'll be the first one. But I also want to say that these aren't just pictures. I'm calling these three strange pictures of prayer. Because they're not common pictures that we would see when we talk about prayer in the Bible. They're three strange pictures because they're not exactly what we think of. But yet, they will teach us much about prayer. So I hope you've laid the foundation this week. Last week, we talked about praying that prayer that Jesus, let me know your love for me more deeply. And we asked, I asked you to pray that each day this week. I hope you did. I hope that was a foundation. And now, we're going to look at these three strange pictures of prayer. And the first one we're going to look at is from Exodus 33. If you're new to the Bible, it's really easy. There's just two, the, the second book is Exodus. So go past Genesis and Exodus, go to 33. I'll be on page 77 if you're using our uh, 
Bible here in the worship center, and I'm going to move through these three pictures. We're going to turn to three different places in the scriptures, but don't worry, we'll lead you there. So in this context of where we're at here in Exodus 33, so Moses is the leader. Moses is leading probably about 7 million people is what uh, the scholars estimate. Uh, He led them uh, out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's taken them to a promised land. And they just finished a time where Moses went up in the mountain to meet with God and the people turned their backs on God. They rebelled against him. They formed this calf. They said, this is going to be our new God. And they began worshiping this calf out of gold. And so their hearts were turned and God was angered. And if you look at uh, Exodus 32, verse 10... God says, now leave me alone. He's speaking to Moses. He says, now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. But you, Moses, I will make into a great nation. You see the anger of God when his people turn and worship something other than him. There's an an anger that comes, a vengeance that's real, that's there. And so Moses, on behalf of the people, intercedes with God. And then if you look at verse 33, uh, something happens in verses 7 to 11. Let's look at this together. Exodus 33, 7 to 11. Now Moses took a tent and pitched it outside the camp. There's like 7 million people in this camp and they're in the desert. And so he goes outside the camp and he pitches this tent, a distance away from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went into the tent, all the people would stand up, each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses as all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance of the tent. They would stand up, then bow and worship, and each one at the door of his tent The Lord would speak with Moses face to face just as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp and his assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. In this picture, we see lots of things going on. First, we see that God's abiding presence is with his people. And we first see that in this concept of this pillar of cloud. And back in the beginning of Exodus in chapter 13, 21, God said to the people of Israel and Moses, I will lead you through the desert and I'll use a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by the day so you know I'm with you and you'll know that I'm leading you. And so there was this literal, literal pillar of a cloud that would follow and, and the peop- that would lead and people would follow this pillar. And in Exodus 14, 19, we see it described again in Exodus 24, 15. And now, here, this pillar is there. And it's a symbol that God's presence is among them. It's a tangible, visual picture of God's presence. So he's saying, the picture we see here is when Moses goes in this tent, this pillar comes, it's like the seal of approval. It's like a notice that God's presence is here. God's abiding presence continues because we see that inside this tent, there's a continuing relationship with God and Moses. Because God just doesn't give Moses a scroll. He doesn't just give Moses uh, symbolic things, but it says that he converses with Moses 
face to face like a person would speak with their friend. Inside this tent, Moses would meet with the living Almighty God in a way where it was transferred as friendship. There was an abiding presence that happened in that tent. Not only was there abiding presence, but we also see that prayer brings God's presence. Prayer brings God's presence. First, Moses' prayers would be, in a way, a mediator, uh, I'm sorry, mediation between God's people and a holy God. As we saw in verse uh, 10 of chapter 32, God was angered by the actions of God's people, the rebellion that they had, and Moses stood in that spot between a holy God and a sinful people, and it was a foreshadowing of coming that there would be another that would come and do the same, and his name is Jesus Christ, who would stand between the sins of the people and a holy God. And Moses is doing this here, and as he prays, God's presence is brought to the people. Second, we see an amazing effect that God's presence has on people. Look at verse 11. This is an amazing picture. The Lord would speak with Moses face to face just as man speaks with a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. His assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. Joshua did not leave the tent because Joshua realized that in God's presence is the fullness of joy. He didn't leave the tent because there's something special about the residue of the presence of God that he just wanted to remain in God's presence. He didn't want to go back out without God. He wanted to remain in his presence. He knew that, as Psalm 16:11 tells us, that in God's presence there is the fullness of joy. There's soul satisfaction. There's peace. There's this amazing thing that happens to us when we remain in God's presence and stay in God's presence. And I was praying for us as Crossview this week. I was praying, God, let us be a people that would stay in the tent. Let us be a people that would remain in your presence. Let us be a people that were so captivated by the presence of God that we wouldn't want to leave it. Let us know your presence in that way. It's not just this objective thing that we can't think about, but it's something that we really truly experience. In God's presence, there's true life. In God's presence, life makes true sense. In God's presence, we see us as we are truly meant to be known. See, Joshua had a heart that was drawn to God's presence, and he wanted to be so close to God. Sometimes we fill our lives with things that are substitutes for God's presence. See, we were created to be magnets for the presence of God. We were created to be filled with the presence of God. But sometimes we take that void and that longing and we fill it with all these substitutes in life. And we squeeze the presence of God out of our life as we fill it with all these different substitutes. And you know what the substitutes are. I don't have to go down a list. But we fill our life with substitutes that kind of give us a fake little shot of life, a little shot of presence, a little shot of peace, a little shot of hope, when God is calling us to the real thing, to be living in his presence. There's a period of time when I uh, took sugar completely out of my diet for a pretty long period of time. And I remember the first time I took milk after that period of time. It tasted like so sweet. 
and I never tasted milk sweet before, but I saw that the reason it tasted sweet is because milk has sugar in it. But I never tasted the sugar in milk because my taste buds were so saturated with other sugars that it just didn't even register at all. See, we do the same thing when we go through life, that we substitute God's presence with so many things, and God is calling us to the real thing. He's calling us to be people who would remain at the tent instead of chasing after all these things. Let us go back to the tent. And so the principle we learn from this picture, number one, is that prayer is being in God's presence and enjoying him. Prayer is being in God's presence and enjoying him. Sometimes when we think of prayer, we think of things we have to say. I want you to walk away this morning realizing sometimes prayer is just sitting in God's presence and being with him. You don't have to say a word. Just being with God is prayer. Being with him is there. When Jesus spent those long nights with God in prayer, I think a lot of times he was probably silent, just sat there in the presence of his father. So prayer is being in the presence of God. Let's go to picture number two. Picture number two is just uh, five books over. If you turn through and you go through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then you'll come to Joshua. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 5. This is on page 187. If you're using our worship center Bible, we're going to see another picture. This Joshua who remained at that tent, who couldn't get enough of God's presence, who didn't want to leave God's presence. He remained in the tent. Now Joshua's the leader of the people. Moses has died. These seven million people have now been placed into the leadership of Joshua's hands. And it's probably a relatively new time that has happened. He's a newer leader of these people. He's walking them, marching them through where God's leading. God's leading them to this promised land. But there's this thing in between them and this promised land, this place called Jericho. And God told Joshua, there's going to be a battle at Jericho, and you're going to have to lead my people through this battle. So picture what Joshua's probably feeling right now. He's a new leader, just saw Moses, his mentor, his friend, die. He saw what kind of leader Moses is. He probably felt like, there's no way I could lead like that. And now God is saying, I need you, Joshua, to lead my people to what I promised them, but you got to go through this battle called Jericho. He has no idea what's going to happen there. He has no idea where uh, this is going to end up. And so he goes out to scope the scene. He gets up at night, he leaves the people, and he's going out to kind of scope and see this thing that Jericho, where this Jericho is, and he's probably thinking about, what in the world am I doing here? I, I can't lead like Moses. There's a battle coming. I have no idea what this means. I don't know I have any idea where this goes. He probably has all these feelings of fear. And then this is what happens. Joshua chapter 5, let's read 13 to 15. Joshua 5, 13 to 15. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in worship and asked him, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. 
And Joshua did that. Let's unpack this a little bit. So Joshua, he, he probably is thinking, man, I really want some peace right now. I really want some assurance right now. I really want some peace and, and comfort. And then all of a sudden he sees this picture of this heavenly being standing before him. But he's not there with a handful of comfort. He has a sword drawn. It would be like if we walked through the, the woods at night and we're looking and all of a sudden there's this heavenly kind of being that lights up in front of us and he's standing with an AK-47. There's an intimidating thing. It's not a picture of peace. It's a picture of battle. And so he's longing for peace, but he sees this. And some say this is an angel. Some say it's what's called a theophany, which is Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. We don't know exactly, but we do know this is a messenger from God. And he appears with his sword. And so the first thing Joshua asks, are you for us or are you against us? That was his knee-jerk reaction. He just saw this being and says, are you for us or are you against us? What is the angel of the Lord's army say in return? Neither. He doesn't answer his question. Many times we go before God in prayer and we say, God, here's what it is. I need this right now. And God doesn't always answer our question. Do you know why? Because he's got a bigger purpose. He has something bigger. See, we view things and we see it the way we want and we say, this is what I want. But sometimes God has something bigger. This angel of the Lord's army didn't answer Joshua. He said, neither, because he said, in a way, I have a different agenda, Joshua. All you're thinking about is war right now. I have a different agenda. We have to take care of something first. You need to realize who's called you. You need to realize who you are in, G in God. You need to realize what we're doing here. We'll get to the battle in a second, but there's a different agenda. I have something else on my mind. Before you understand the cause, you need to understand who I am. And when you understand who I am, you'll understand who you are. See, he had a bigger purpose than what was on Joshua's heart in that moment. We're always in a hurry. You know that as people? We're always in a hurry. God is not... Patience is something that God likes to cultivate within us. And this was a moment for Joshua when his whole world was spinning inside his head that God intervened and just said, just settle down a second. Just take a moment. What's important is not whether I'm for or against. What's important is how you respond right now to the living God. That's what's important. So he responds with his title, look at verse 14, after he says, neither, then uh, Joshua bowed with his face to his ground in worship. So he recognizes who this is, and now it changes everything. Once he recognizes, he says, this is God speaking through this person. This is, I need to get with uh, the reaction that I'd normally do when I'm in the presence of he probably maybe remembered the tent and the presence, and he said, now I need to fall to the ground and worship because he remembered that it's from the position of worship that God speaks. And so then Joshua asks a better question. He doesn't say, are you for me or against me anymore? What does he say now and from a position of worship? What do you want to say to me? You see, when we pause our lives and we worship God and we remember who he is, 
We get a different perspective through worship. We get the true perspective. We get the perspective that this is an almighty father. And then our knee-jerk reaction out of that perspective of worship is, God, speak. What is it you want to say to me? What's on your heart for me? What's on your agenda for me? What is it that you have? It's not all about me bringing my stuff. I want to sit here and say, God, what do you have? And then this angel, this commander of the Lord's army says, take off your sandals. And I think he does that for two reasons. First of all, it's the proper response for human beings in the Old Testament when they're standing on holy ground. When you stand in the presence of God, you you have to worship him. And part of worship in their culture was to take off their sandals because they were before holy ground. And he wanted to respond rightly. But the second reason I think he does that is for those of you that may be familiar with Bible stories, there's a time when this great leader Moses stood before a burning bush and God said to Moses, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. And Joshua had to hear that story from Moses probably a thousand times. He was probably like, oh, now he's going to go tell the bush story again. He heard it a thousand times and as a way of God assuring, Moses, or assuring Joshua that just as I was faithful to Moses, I'm going to be faithful to you. You take off your sandals. You worship me. You don't worry about Jericho. Don't worry about this huge battle. Don't worry about leading all these people. Don't worry about all the things, that the, the, the fights among themselves. Don't worry. You just come and worship me. You remember who I am. And you respond rightly to who I am in my presence. And then I'm going to speak to you. And I'm going to tell you what you need to do. And I'm going to be there with you. Notice he was... This being was dressed for battle. You see, God took Jericho in a very unique way. And I think this was the leader of the army that took Jericho for Joshua. But there had to be this moment first. Because God knew what Joshua needed in this moment better than Joshua knew what he needed. Even in the confusion and in the scariness, God knew better than Joshua. Do you trust God to know better what you need than yourself? Do you trust God to interact with you? And when you bring all your requests to him, which you can, in those moments when he guides you and he leads you and he might not fix it the way you want to the point where your heartfelt need is fulfilled, do you still trust him? Do you still say that because of who you are, I know that this will be okay. Through his surrendering of his will and moving into worship, God met Joshua above and beyond the needs that Joshua would even wanted to be met for himself in that moment. But the secret is he worshiped and submitted. He worshiped and surrendered. And God knew that Joshua would be satisfied, prepared, ready to live out his calling. God's presence satisfied satisfied his needs. There was a meeting that took place with Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War with his generals. And one of the generals to encourage Abraham Lincoln came up to him and said, Mr. President, God is on your side. And Abraham Lincoln responded, My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is whether we are on God's side. Because God is always right. Do your prayers 
try to get God on your side? Or do your prayers try to get you on God's side? Let me say that again. Do our prayers try to get God on our side? God, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to give me this, you need to give me this, you need to give me Or do our prayers get us on God's side? God, I'm scared, I have this feeling, but I'm going to give it to you and I'm going to trust you. God, I don't know what to do here and I feel like I need this in order to go forward. And, but, and maybe there's something else here, but I'm going to give this to you and I'm going to trust you. And I ask that you would move me into your center of your will and let me know you there because I know that's better than even what I could ask for myself right now. You see, I think this interaction took place with Joshua because God was moving Joshua to that place where his prayers weren't to get God on his side, but he wanted to get Joshua's heart on God's side. Are you at a place where you would rather be on God's side than get God on your side? Has that cultivated in your heart? Do you desire his will above your own truly? Is he, do we as a church desire God's will above our own? You see, prayer is a place where ownership and loyalty and trust is transferred from us to God. And that's what we see in this very strange picture in Joshua 5. The principle is this. Prayer is listening, obeying, and trusting him with what we need, not ourselves. Prayer is listening, obeying, and trusting him with what we need. It doesn't mean we can't tell him our needs and things on our head, but it means we leave those with him and trust him to move powerfully. So let's look at our third picture, picture number three. It's in Matthew, so you've got to flip way into the New Testament, go past the whole Old Testament. You'll start getting to Matthew, and you want to go to Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 39. I'll be on page 882. This is a picture of Jesus in the garden right before he goes to the cross. He gathers his disciples in the garden. It's dark. It's night. It's right before he's getting ready to leave and go to the cross. It's kind of his last moment of freedom before he's placed in the hands of those who are going to torture him and beat him. So Matthew 26, verse 36 there's an intimate moment here between Jesus and his father. It says, Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful, sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Translation, I am so sad and hurting right now I want to die. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he knew he had to be alone with his father. He fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Let me kind of pull this out. So Jesus is in the garden he's, before he goes to the cross, and he says he's sorrowful to the point of death. He's so sad that he, and, 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 and freaked out that he wants to die because he's anticipating the physical, the emotional, and the mental torture that's about to come upon him. 
And I, he knows what's going to happen when he goes to the cross. He knows what's going to happen from this moment forward when he submits to what is supposed to happen. He knows what's going to happen to him personally. And I believe that the separation between him and God the Father, that emotional separation, that mental separation, is worse than the physical torture that's about to come upon him because you have to remember that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit always existed in community, community with one another, in relationship with one another. They had no beginning. So Jesus was about to face the first time ever that he was separated from God the Father and God the Spirit because God the Father, for this plan of the gospel to go through, had to take the sins of the human race, place it upon his son, then pour out his wrath upon his son. Where it says, let this cup pass from me. In the Old Testament, cup was a symbol of wrath or a symbol of judgment. And what Jesus is saying is, God, if there's another way to bring forgiveness to the human race, let's think about it right now. Let's do something different. That's what he was asking. In this real moment, he, in this real honesty he had with the Father, and I believe if you look at verse 39, where it says uh, in the middle of verse, my Father, this is Jesus' prayer, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, then we immediately read, yet not as I will, but as you will. But I believe what was happening is Jesus said, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And then there was a period of time where he was feeling that agony. It wasn't like he said, let this cup pass from me, yet mine will, not yours. My, or not my will, your will. It didn't work like that. He was saying, let this cup pass from me. Let, we got to think of a different plan. There's no way I can go through what's about to happen. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And he poured out his heart in reality, God. And then God met him in that place and empowered him to say, yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus yielded his will to God the Father. He surrendered. He submitted. He yielded. To yield means to give away my rights in submission. That's what Jesus did. And in this picture, we see two different responses to difficult trials in life. We see Jesus' response and we see the disciples' response. Jesus responded in surrender and submission, yielding. The disciples responded in ignorance and fear. And I want to look at both this. We have to, both, both of these. We want to learn the Jesus way. When we encounter difficult trials in life, we get real with God in prayer. We get honest about the pain. We invite him in and we say, God, there's got to be a better way. And what that does is it puts us in a position where we're not standing on our own strength. We're not standing on our own power. We're not standing on our own wisdom. But we learn a new trust. We learn a new dependence. We stand in the power of God. You see, that comes from being in a trial and saying, not my will, but yours be done. There's something special that happens to us spiritually in our hearts when we get to that spot where we can yield in that way and say, not my will, but yours be done. It's like Job, who was a holy man, and when God was putting the pressure on him, putting him through this horrible, horrible trial, he said, though he slays me, I will follow and trust him. You see, 
God takes us to new levels when we admit our weakness and we surrender ourselves to him. The person who will depend on God in times of trial is the person who will find peace and be used by God in powerful ways. And above all, we must yield ourselves fully to God. Listen to me a minute. Our problem is not the trial that faces us or the difficulty we're in or the trial we're experiencing. Our problem is the resistance to surrender to our Heavenly Father. That's the problem. Our problem is not the trial we'll experience and things we're going through. The greatest enemy we have to be aware of and watch within our heart is our resistance to surrender to God even in the midst of the trial. Because when we realize that he's with us in the trial and we can surrender to him, it will almost create within us this thankfulness for the trial because it pushed us into the face of God in a way perhaps could never be done any other way. The only other alternative, that's how Jesus faced this trial. The other alternative is how the disciples faced it. They fled in fear and they blew it all off and they went to sleep. Instead of looking to God and yielded him, they focused on their circumstances. They became self-absorbed. They became isolated. See, when you go through a trial, you have kind of two reactions. You either run to God or you run from God and isolate from people and you withdraw back. Instead of taking it to God, instead of being honest, instead of pouring it out, they kept it in their own soul and it would force them into fear and to run away. So principle number three from this picture is prayer is the place where we surrender, submit, and yield our hearts to God to find peace. See, a surrendered heart is a peaceful heart. A submitted heart is a heart that is, has peace within the storm. These are three strange pictures that show different dimensions of prayer. But there's one more that I want to show you that's a bonus picture. This means that while I was studying, I found a fourth thing, and I was too lazy to change it all, so I said, I'll just call it a bonus. <laughs> this comes from Pastor John Piper, an author and pastor who is up in the Minneapolis area, and he writes this about prayer. He says, prayer is a walkie-talkie to be used in a time of war. And this is a quote from one of his books. He said, I don't dare tire of saying to our church the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of Christians is that they try, uh, that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you believe that life is a war, you cannot know what the purpose of prayer is. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, who is Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission to go and bear fruit and take the gospel to the world, handed each of them a personal transmitter, coded to a frequency to the general's headquarters, and said, Okay, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished, and to that end he has authorized you to take this transmitter... And know that you have personal access to him. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close to you as your transmitter. To give you tactical advice, to send in air cover when needed, and to help you in the battle. 
But what has millions of Christians done? They have stopped believing that we are at war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peacetime and prosperity. And when they go to that place, what do they do with the walkie-talkie? They try to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for a spiritual conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. We have so domesticated prayer that is no longer in many of our lives and churches what is created to be a wartime walkie-talkie for the accomplishment of the mission that God commands us. You see, when the only time we pray, God, I want, God, I want, God, I want, God, I want, we miss something huge. How is prayer used as a weapon? When you watch the news and you see all that's going on and you just shut it off and you say, God, this world's a mess. Will you help me to be a conduit that would share your love with the world? Will you help Crossview Church be a church that's a beacon of light and hope in a very dark place? When you begin praying for someone that you know is very, very far from God, and you say, God, will you tear down the walls that are separating them and you, that they would know you in a deeper, truer way? See, when you pray offensively, that's where prayer becomes what is meant to be. And the bonus principle is that prayer is a walkie-talkie to be used in a time of war, to take the hill. So prayer is being in God's presence and enjoying him. Prayer is listening and obeying and trusting him with what we need. Prayer is the place we surrender, submit, and yield our hearts to God to find peace. And prayer is this walkie-talkie used in a time of war. I pray that we as Crossview Church be a church that is engaging the conflict in front of us with the weapons of love, truth, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way we do that is we pray that God moves in situations in our lives. And it's not that we can never pray our own needs, but if that's all we do, we totally miss this thing called prayer. In fact, I would say we miss the most important part. So as we focus on prayer this whole year at Crossview Church, we want to give you certain tools that will help. And we gave you one as you came in. Uh, it's our 2020 prayer card. And you should have received this from the ushers when you came in. If you didn't, you can get one on the way out. Um, and on the front side, it has a way to pray. Some of you said, I've never really prayed like this before. I'm kind of new to this thing called prayer. That's great. We're glad you're here. This will help you, especially if you're new to this thing called prayer. And the one the ways you can pray is just remember the words, the letters, P-R-A-Y. Praise, repent, ask, and yield. So it's like this. So the first one is P, I praise. I give God thanks for who he is and what he's given me. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for my family. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for going to the cross for me. You are an amazing God. You are a holy God. And so you're praising and thanking God. And you begin your time of prayer there with praise and thanks to God. And then you move to R, which is repent. God, will you forgive me for my sins? Forgive me for not doing the things I'm supposed to do and forgive me for doing the things I shouldn't do. And you repent and maybe you take specific sins that you know are in your heart and you confess those to God. 
and you have a time of repentance where you come before him, and then you ask him. You ask him the needs on your heart. You ask him bigger things and things that are offensive, like in terms of uh, the wartime mentality. Will you help us as a church to advance your kingdom? And then, as we saw with the life of Jesus, you yield. You surrender all over to God. God, not my will, but yours be done. God, I give you my life. I give you my heart. I give you my plans. I give you what I think should be done And I yield those to you because I acknowledge that your plan is better than mine. And God, if I'm clinging too tightly to what I want, would you, by your grace and mercy, loosen my fingers to give it back to you because I want to submit and surrender my life to you. See, that's what yielding is. And we have that in there. And then on the back side of the card, we're going to ask you to make some yearly commitments. And you know what's kind of cool is none of us could see this, but if we ripped up this carpet on this stage right now, You know what we'd see? We'd see literally hundreds of names, maybe thousands, written on this. Because when Woodlands Church started this, one of the things we like to do is we we, when we start things, we pray that God would use it for his glory. And we ask people to write the name of someone far from God on this stage and ask that God would use this church to help bring that person to a deeper knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And what I would love to see, not only the names, but I always like to see what are the names that are now walking with Jesus Christ because there's some that are here. God moved. He did powerful things. See, when we treat prayer like the wartime walkie-talkie, God responds. He's faithful to his promise. And so what we want you to do is take a person you know far from God and commit to pray for them for a whole year. God, from this time forward, I'm going to ask that this person, you would open the eyes of their heart to see you. You would tear down the walls that are separating them from you, that they would know who you are. And you might even want to write their initials or their names on that mark, and you keep that bookmark with you all the time. Keep it in your Bible. Put it in your car. Put it wherever you see it. And you're praying for this person for a whole year. And maybe there's a place you need to pray for. We're going to ask you to pray for a person, a place in the church. So the place you're praying for, maybe it's your work environment. Maybe it's the place you work. Maybe it's a school. Maybe it's a place where you took a mission trip to. Maybe you're going to research and find an unreached people group, a group of people in the world that do not even, have never even heard of the gospel, and you're going to ask God to do something that they would hear. I don't care where your place is, but pick a place that you're going to pray for for a whole year offensively as a wartime walkie-talkie. And then we ask that you pray for our church. Pray for the youth ministry. Pray for the children's ministry. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our elder board. Pray for your senior pastor. Pray for your pastoral staff. Pray for the ministries that are happening. This place needs your prayer. And so to commit for a whole year to take prayer, not as a domestic intercom, but as the wartime walkie-talkie. And we want a tool to do that. Keep this card with you. And remember, use it to bring praise, use it to bring repentance, ask God to move and surrender and yield your heart to him. Not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray that happens in our lives. God, we thank you that when we walk astray, as we've seen in these pictures, or when we get bombarded with the realities of life in this world, that you are there to meet us, you are there to give us grace, you are there to give us power to surrender to you and become all. So God, I ask that 
as we journey in this thing called prayer, one of my biggest prayers is that you would move us from a place where prayer is nothing but a domestic intercom shouting out the comforts, creatures that we need, but you'd move us more that prayer would be used as a wartime walkie-talkie to advance your kingdom in this city, in this church, and in our hearts. We need your kingdom in our lives. And so, God, we surrender to you now. And I know that when we beg for those things, you uniquely meet us in that place. And so, Commander of the Lord's army, Jesus Christ, would you come and meet us where we need to be met today? Give us the grace to surrender and help us to follow you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.